Hello everybody and welcome to series four, episode two of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Kat Barnard and as ever I'm joined by my co-hosts Jen Sproul and Dominic Waters. Today we have got a brilliant guest uh, that we're going to be chatting with. We're going to be talking about the role of internal communication in social and environmental activism and I am so delighted to introduce our guest David Price. For those of you that attended the 2021 IOIC Festival in Nottingham, you will know David because he opened day two with a brilliant, brilliant keynote that has been really well received. We've had fantastic feedback on it. For me, I would just like to share the story because it might make David laugh as well. Um, I was on a skiing holiday in northern Italy in 2016 when we met a couple who had children similarly aged to our own. And we went for a dinner. We went actually to have raclette um, one evening. And this wonderful lady, Shah, started raving about this book called Open. Um, And she basically said to me, if you don't read this book, then, you know, you'll, you know, be there or be square kind of thing. And, And I went home and I ordered a book called Open from Amazon. And I have been on this journey ever since. So let me introduce you to David. David is an author, a futurist, a speaker, a trainer, and a global thought leader, helping organizations become more innovative and ingenious. His first book, which was the one that I read in 2016, is called Open, How We'll Work, Live, and Learn in the Future, and it's been an Amazon bestseller. His most recent book, The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate, was published in the summer of 2020. His work spans the worlds of education and business as his expertise lies in how individuals and group groups, beg your pardon, learn and develop cultures of innovation. Over a 20 year consulting career, he's worked with a wide range of organizations across the public and private sector, both in the UK and internationally. He's been at the forefront of innovation for learning for over 30 years and in 2009 was made an OBE by Her Majesty the Queen for services to education. So I am absolutely thrilled to kickstart this conversation today. David, I'm, I don't know whether that's made you blush around the ears, but I, you know, your work in terms of our work at Working the Future has been quite pivotal because I guess in many, many ways the book kickstarted my trajectory into trying to understand how the way we work in the 2020s is changing and how those changes are going to reshape the whole of the kind of operating context for our entire society. Well, it's very kind of you, Kat. And I I mean, as people will be able to tell by my accent, I'm just a natural fit for the ski slopes of France and the fondue set. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. I'd love to meet this woman and find out how she she came across the book. But but yes, you're right. Uh, You know, the the, the book kind of opened up a lot of doors for me. And that that is the the wonderful thing. I, I had no idea how to write a book, you know. Ken Robinson was my mentor and, you know, you couldn't wish for a better one. But at the end of the day, you still have to work it out for yourself. And uh, and you put it out there and you you, do, you have no idea what's going to happen. And the, the wonderful thing is all these stories keep emerging of, of people who've come across the book and, and it's it's had an influence. It's, it's really humbling. 
Well, David, as someone who had the joy of only meeting you for the first time, thanks to this connection back in, in the festival and listening to your session, it's it's one that certainly stayed with me afterwards as well. And you talking about the future of like social movements and activism and collectivism and community. And it, it makes you look at, I think, your role as perhaps a leader or particularly of an institute like IOIC, where you're trying to create your own sense of community, your own sense of empowerment and your own sense of passion with monks people so that they walk taller and pr- prouder. I mean, I always say I'm in the business of pride um, when you run institutes because you're there to make people feel good about who they are and what they do and that it has meaning and it has purpose and it has value, whether that's in the smallest moment of someone's just working life to to really making changes that perhaps you know, change society for the better. Um, So for me, you know, I'm still mulling over all of those things. And I guess to kick us off, really, and and to talk about that kind of really big topic is, and obviously, we're here talking about internal communication and what role it can play. So for you, what role can internal communication play in building that strong sense of community at work? Because it's never been more important. Yeah, well, let's let's start with two caveats. The first is, I'm about 99% certain that I've got Omicron, but I'm still showing up negative. But what it's meant is that my throat is particularly scratchy. So I apologize. And I just want to reassure anyone listening to it, you won't get the virus through listening to this podcast. I promise you. Um, the the second thing is, I'm, I'm not actually of that world, as as you know. Um, but but I, I think having a, an outsider's perspective can, can be useful at times. And especially... Uh, for me, the experience of writing the book was that I was I was trying to combine because I, I I never put any kind of constraints on myself, which is probably terrible ill discipline. But I was trying to combine what I was seeing happening in the world as a result of COVID and the way in which social movements were 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 thriving at that time, um, with with the, the the massive challenges that organisations were going to have to face. So I think to answer your question, Jen, it, for me. The the role is to to make the the internal brand visible, um, and, and by internal brand I mean like everything that the organisation stands for. But I also think it's it it should be, and I don't think it always is, to check the alignment between the purpose and values as broadcast externally, and those that are lived internally. And I think that too often. Um, Internal comms are, are, are perceived in a transmit mode and maybe not enough in a receive mode. Um, and, you know, we, we have a cultural audit that we encourage organisations to, to run. And it seems to me, although it almost always ends up, you know, in the hands of HR departments, the, the administration of it, um, a, 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 what is essentially a bottom-up exercise, which is reflecting the culture as it is, not as we'd all like it to be, um, I think that is is could be a key role for internal comms, and then to 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 be the the conduit between the the leadership of the organisation and the workforce in saying, okay, well, this is the culture that we have. Is it the culture that we want? And 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 if not, what can we do collectively to to to, to change it because too often I think culture is seen as being a top-down concern that essentially the leadership are responsible for setting the culture as if they, 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 there was not a culture that's happening, you know, 
in every conversation around the water cooler. Culture is what's in people's heads and hearts, not not what's on the motivational posters up in the office wall. I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, we, when we look at internal comms and, and Dom, I know you're going to come in and you have some particularly from your experience in terms of the leadership side of things as well. But when we look at where internal comms has come from and where we believe we are and where we're going, it is not about broadcast, but about engendering environments and how that and how that comes about. And there has never been for me a lot of this podcast is about presenting those opportunities. And there never has been a better opportunity when I think it's all up for grabs to play that that, that role of, of, of aligning and doing that. And it's it's hard work and it's conversation and it's dialogue and it's checking in but it's but the value I think to the business is becoming clearer Dom I know you were going to pick up potentially around sort of your views on that that the leadership side and from your your experiences as well uh, yeah absolutely I mean I was interested though you, you were talking about uh, this conduit telecoms can be a conduit to help the top team if you like or the leadership team really understand what the actual culture is and what people are signing up to um, and I think one of the things we found around um uh, building cultures establish a common identity around a culture in other words making sure that people are probably the wrong phrase but saluting the right flags yeah. because often people salute different flags as well so it'd be good to understand from you what your experience is of internal comms and how it's managed to maintain a shared cultural identity in organizations and, and it'd be great if you could give us a few examples of, of where organizations have tackled this and been successful yeah well i, I you know I, the context we we just can't get away from the con the current context as much as we'd like to it it it's only a few months since i spoke at that conference and yet the pictures changed so dramatically since then you know and this resignation wave that we're seeing around the world it it's only accelerating right now um i think it's something like 40 million americans have quit their jobs now um that's a huge number and that introspection which has gone on I think gives gives internal comms a you know yet another significant challenge because I don't I don't think you ever could but you certainly can't tell people now what the identity of the organization should be what uh, you know what 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 we expect from you as an employee it just doesn't work anymore um I do, I do some work with a, a, a culture uh, consultancy in New York called Sparks and Honey and they produced a report recently and the, the, the quotation that leapt out at me was, you're not the leader anymore, your people are. And, and I think it's true that we've seen this power shift. Now, how long it lasts, I don't know. I suppose it's going to be down to what happens when the people who jump ship then find that the next job that they go to is kind of similar to the one that they've just left. And maybe jumping ship every five minutes isn't the best idea. But I think it does throw the that that power dynamic into sharp relief. So to give you one example, I I interviewed the CEO of a um, uh, uh, the, well, what what is the largest advertising agency in the UK, and we were in the very swanky offices in Kings Cross, and we were the only people there. And I said, "Where is everybody?" And he laughed and he said, "Well, they're all at home." I said. And this was the time when, you know, the offices were starting to open up again. And I said, so when are they coming back? And he said, I don't know. He said, I can, I can ask them to. And, you know, being an advertising agency, he was, he was the first to point out that, you know, often you just need to get people in a room and get some ideas buzzing. But he didn't feel like he was in a position to say, you really need to come back. Um, 
that's inconceivable even five years ago. I, I, we also had a very interesting conversation about some of the, the kind of moral and ethical dilemmas that CEOs now find themselves in. And I said at one point, you know, did you ever imagine, say, 10 years ago, that, that you'd be asked for your position on, I don't know, transgender rights? And he laughed and he said, well, of course not. He said, and, and if anybody had, I would have said it's none of my business. And of course, it's everybody's business now. So I, I, I think how the, the role that comms has to play in that is, is about ensuring that the, if you like, that transmit message is done in a way which is sensitive and empathetic to people's needs and recognizes what we've got. You know, Brewdog over the summer was a, was a classic case of when you get that wrong mm-hmm. um, and, and how that can badly uh, misfire. But I think it's also about making sure that the the what what, what is happening in people's lives and in people's uh, circumstances right now is actually being reflected and relayed to to the senior leadership team. Because I think we did a our agency, Paragos Agency, did a, a survey, uh, which we jokingly called a post COVID survey. This was about nine months ago, thinking that it was all going to be over. Um, we could probably still do it in another couple of years, and it still wouldn't be post-COVID. But but we were asking what you know what were what were CEOs' main concerns now as we move into another phase of the the pandemic, and they were using words that you just would not expect from CEOs. Things like we need to reconnect people, we need to look after their their mental well-being. Gary Ridge, the the CEO of WD40, put it beautifully in an interview that I did with him recently when he said he just he just reopened the offices and and as people came in, he had a being Gary had a bunch of donuts and everybody got a donut as they walked back in and he said I have to tell my my people that's his comms people and uh, his HR people that these are not the same people who walked out of the office eighteen months ago they have been changed and we can't talk to them as though. It, it was the world that we knew before. It's different now. So I think t- t- the, the long-winded answer to your question is I, I, I think it is about b- being that kind of reflection of what's happening as much as it is being the, 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 the megaphone that is, that is getting the messages across from leadership. Which makes a lot of sense. And it leads me to another question, if, if I can. Um, something we've come across is leaders have understood the new situation and saying basically everybody is a leader and i know there have been several books on this theme that everyone is a leader but that then begs the question to senior people which is what's my role then so what can i be doing and it'd be great to get your take on that you quoted some examples there um of how leaders are adapting to this new world i uh, yeah i think um they are recognizing that you know, as I just said before, they can't tell people what to do anymore. That's that's change. Nor can they be this kind of you know hero CEO who takes on all the challenges and and acts as a kind of role model. My 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 favourite model of a of a leader currently is is someone who's who's just never there, and it's it's Yvonne Schoenard in Patagonia, and he believes in in what he what he calls his MBA is management by absence. Um, because he says if people are never given the opportunity to become, to exercise those leadership skills that, you know, we blithely kind of say, yes, everybody's got those, but how often do we give people that opportunity? Um, so 
the, that to me seems to be, and I think it's it's a level beyond this concept of servant leader. I think it is saying we now have to fundamentally rethink how we organize ourselves so that the 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 ability to genuinely distribute leadership isn't hindered by you know the hierarchy of the organization or or, or by our, our social purpose. You know, I, I, I just think that there are a number of really interesting models of, um, you know, the, the, the phrase that's used to describe it is holacracy, which is a horrible word, but it essentially means self-managed teams. And everyone thought that that was just a recipe for chaos because if if nobody's leading, then how do decisions get made? But the reality has been that when studies have been done on effective self-managed teams, and there are many ineffective models, but but the reality is then everybody becomes a leader, and so the the decisions and the ownership and the accountability is 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 kind of built baked in from the outset. When Ricardo Semler took over Semco. You know, and I'm, I know he's often kind of quoted as the poster child for progressive management, but but it's it, it's true that he he has broken the mold on on so many things. But one of the things that he did was to say to people, "Our job is not to sit here and listen to you tell us what we're doing wrong. Our job is to ask you how you can fix it." So you know, he gave one example of the the food in the in the canteen's terrible. Okay, well, let's not let's not blame the people who are cooking that food. What can we do? What can you do to help them? And and he he, he literally turned that organisation inside out. Now, not all of us can do that, but I think we are starting to see now that all of these things are coming together. They're starting to connect. The Great Resignation wave is connected to this this wave of introspection that's gone on in people's lives, but it's also connecting to the social movements, which have been much more effective in the last five to ten years. And so the whole notion of purpose and values, I think, is 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 right at the heart of it and being questioned in ways that I think it's never done before. I think that's something really interesting and I'm kind of my brain is scattering along um, a variety of strands at the moment. But I think, you know, in addition to organisations fundamentally needing to reconfigure kind of their rules of engagement for the 2020s, there's also this piece, as we're discussing, around you know the new roles and responsibilities of the leader in a way that I think perhaps transcends any previous conversations about leadership because you know we had on a previous episode um, Damien Corbett who has published a book called The Social CEO all about how leaders today have this invaluable tool at their fingertips, which is how, you know, which enables them to communicate effectively with both internal and external audiences. And he, in the book, he gives some brilliant examples of, of leaders that are leveraging social media. But I think the fact is that we've got one, and, you know, new generations living their lives online. You know, I think we're probably without you know, we're all old enough that we can remember life before the internet. But but we overlook the fact that 60% now of the workforce is made up of millennials and centennials. And for centennials, 
they've only ever known digital life. They've got no idea of of what what life would have been like before that. And they expect a level of transparency from any influential figures that that we our generation may still be uncomfortable with. So the spotlight is on leaders in a way like never before. I'm also and I, I, you know, throw this open to you guys, my sense is that the last decade, as the internet has grown and proliferated, we've, we've come across this kind of culture of um, CEO celebrity, you know, so now everywhere you can see CEO celebrities, and, you know, they, they're kind of castigated as a force for good. So back to Patagonia, back to Semco, back to, you know, um, Gary Ridge, at WD-40 and so on, or as a force for kind of malevolence. So you might look at, you know, the, the, the kind of almost caricature that Mark Zuckerberg has become, or, you know, Jeff Bezos doesn't, Yep. doesn't come over well in the media because of the billions that he's amassed and his preference to shoot rockets into the sky rather than to solve, you know, to use that proactively to solve environmental and social injustices. So there's that whole melee of change going on, which is actually quite deeply discomforting because there is a sense of, well, I've become a leader, I've arrived, I am a complete and finished package, whereas actually that's not the case because the whole construct of leadership is is changing. I think it's interesting, you said something earlier, David, about, you know, uh, values, purpose, vision, etc., kind of being framed, framed statements on a wall, whereas in actual fact, and, and, and certainly that was the case. I remember, you know, 20, 25 years ago, working for in the recruitment sector for the first time, and there, there was a framed mission statement on the front desk of reception as you walked in and nobody could remember it but it was there and every time we had an ISO you know certification or re-evaluation we all had to scurry down and remember what the what the mission <laughs> statement was but all of that has changed like the role of the leader now for me is is that you know the the, the two key qualities the ability to listen, the ability to be curious, those are two things that I would absolutely put out there. To empathise, to, to show, if, if you have a curiosity towards humanity, then you are empathic. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, but actually, you know, you are the beacon holder of your organisation. So while... You want people to step, you know, you want people to feel that they um, can influence and affect change in within an organisation. It's kind of your job it, it, to be the grown up in the room. Let's face it, we're not seeing a lot of that at the moment on the national stage. But, you know, be the grown up in the room and, and keep uh, reinforcing the messaging around the values, the vision, the purpose. And the mission that's that's the job there's so much of this where internal communication as a function discipline profession needs to almost train the leaders in 
the capacity for effective but authentic communication also authentic not because oh we think that this is going to help us with our recruitment and retention or it's going to position us as you know it's going to tick a csr box or what have you the game has changed and younger generations will call out or cancel anything that they think is incongruent with authenticity and this, this is where i think we've got a lot to learn from the way social movements have been formed and their their heightened level of effectiveness you know it, it, I, I i vividly remember in fact i referred to them in in open in the first book that you know occupy was seen as a failure but in a sense the mistakes that were made during the occupy movement have been picked up by people like extinction rebellion and and others and they they're very quick at learning organizations these social media uh, social movements but but i think they also have a number of values which um we we lose that and and in the in the power of us i talk about the different mindset between user innovators so the the, the people who are using those products and services or creating new ones um or, or indeed social campaigns and the producers and and quite often it seems to me that most the, the most people who are in the producer mindset started off as as user innovators you know they had an idea for something and and it grew and pretty soon it became a business and i have to say james dyson would would be a classic he falls into this you know he started off as like one man in a shed and before he knows where he is he's shipping his all his workforce out to malaysia because it's cheaper well that seems to me to be you're at risk at losing the kind of communities that enabled you to be established in the first place so i think what what we learn from uh, social movements and 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 what's interesting is that social movements are also learning from the corporate world particularly when it comes to messaging but the corporate world's also learning from social movements um so you know you see this real blurring around you know Nike's campaign with Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter they're giving millions to the Black Lives Matter cause is it is it a cynical attempt to to jump on a bandwagon who knows who can be really sure but it it does mean that what what Nike can do is they can they can hold their hand up when when those millennials and centennials are saying what are you doing uh in terms of your social purpose and i just think whatever view we might have about how far any of this is going you know i i saw a discussion yesterday about um Hellman's mayonnaise and the people who work at Hellman's mayonnaise have been doing a review of their purpose and someone just thought this was hilarious it's bloody mayonnaise it doesn't need a purpose and then you start to look at well what's the ingredients in Hellman's mayonnaise well it's rapeseed oil so that's a bit of a contentious area eggs well are the free range eggs um they use a thing called calcium disodium EDTA which is a highly contentious ingredient so you can't avoid this stuff now and not only do your younger kind of workforce uh, not only are they watching what you're doing so are your users and i think this idea that as long as we get the message out to the people who buy and use our products and services then everything will be okay is 
they're, they're missing a trick because those users are now making things themselves. They're hacking products. And so that, that calls for a whole different conversation. It's not so much about what would you like us to, to make for you, but how can you be involved in the process of making things? And, and that's a challenge as well. So, you know, it's, it, CEOs have got an awful lot to cope with right now, but, but I think it's the role of internal comms to help them with that. And, sorry, just to say, and that is kind of the role expansion for um, for internal comms and, and hopefully we'll be able to um, provide some resources throughout the course of this year, which really kind of cement this is, you know, uh, that, that there's an urgent requirement to reset the rules of engagement to, to move us on from simply being transmitters of information to also being receivers. Because like you say, David, you know, if you think about some of the operating methodologies that have emanated from Silicon Valley since the since Agile became, you know, a big thing. If you look at the work of um, Eric Rees in uh, the Lean Startup, he, he talks about, you know, if you want to if you want to form a truly agile organization, you need to develop these continuous feedback loops with your customer audiences who will tell you how you need to improve and up your game. And why would you not why would you not tap into that? So your point about Hellman's really interesting, like, oh, it's mayonnaise. But on the other hand, if the signs and signals are there in the market that that consumers will stop buying your product because of some dodgy ingredient or rapeseed oil or whatever, whatever, you've got time to respond to that if you're hearing the signaling in advance. If you're not listening, if you're deaf to that feedback, you're nowhere. This also leads to the dilemma, I guess, that we, we hear from lots of leaders, which is, uh, on the one hand, you can quote social uh, social activists. Uh, you mentioned Extinction Rebellion, for example, the Occupy movement. Mm. Of course, they're not answerable to anybody. And so if people don't like what's going on there, they branch off. They've got very little longevity of many of these organisations. I guess with the exception of Greenpeace, is not much. And so Extinction Rebellion's already had break-off um, uh, parts as well. So leaders I, I've spoken to have said, OK, we can harness that sort of passion, but how do we harness that in a way that's, that allows longevity, that allows us to keep going, that allows us to stay in business? And I think having that conversation is something that leaders found really, really hard. So, so David, it'd be great to get your take on, on how to do that. Well, <laughs> What's your problem? Sure. It's, it's a huge and complex problem, but it seems to me that it goes back to the question earlier about what, what, how has the role of leaders changed? Because I think it, it all comes back to culture in the end. And, and, and that culture is either the, the internal culture or, or the, the way that you've created a, a culture externally. And I, I, I balk at the idea that it's the leader's job to, to set the culture. I don't think you can do. That implies that people have got absolutely no free will or they're not capable of doing that. But I think it is the leader's job to try and cultivate that and to I, – I always end up using horticultural analogies, but it, it really is about ensuring that whatever is coming up through the ground is is not only healthy, but it it it's going to last and, and has a sustainability. And, and, and that only happens 
when people really feel ownership. Um, and, and it's been interesting. When we've, when we've run these cultural audits with organisations, we do occasionally get some people say, well, we'd like you to change that question. Uh, and I go, why? Uh, because we think that might take people into a, a kind of hypercritical mode. And I think, well, that's a conversation that you need to be having. You know, don't don't try and change the questions that we're asking. We sometimes get people who are saying, could you could you atomize it down? And we say, well, no, we can't, because if you can start to pinpoint who who gave the response, then people are, are, are not going to feel free. So those those kind of issues of trust and equity, it, you know, they, they, they were not always perceived as being at the heart of how you build that organization because people often couldn't put a monetary value on it. But but frankly, I, I think particularly with the, the, the all the things we've been talking about up to now and, and the, the the younger people who make up the majority of that workforce, it's it's a it's a non-negotiable really. You 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 have to start with that. And so I I I fully accept that there is a, a, a question of accountability. Although I would, I would say, Dom, I think that social movements aren't without their, they're often being held accountable by the media or, you know, some of the people we saw that with Insulated Britain uh, very recently. But I think it is, it is also at, at the heart of it. Um, Kat talked about authenticity, but, but what you see in social media, uh, social movements is that the moment you try to fake it, you're dead. And and I also think this is the case with, with leaders now. We have seen that some people jumped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon too late and they had skeletons in the cupboard and it really just makes it worse. So for me, it is about saying what is our culture? What would we like that culture to be? And how can we bring in the widest possible constituency which is not just users but also other kinds of stakeholders to help us shape that and frankly that that requires a bit of humility mm. well david let, let's put this we need to come into land so can i can i ask a question to bring it together really because many of the people listening to this will be internal communication professionals and we spoke a lot about their role but it'd be great just to summarize from your point of view how you think internal communicators can really help um, organizations um, use and, and capitalize and, and improve themselves um, based upon demands for civic responsibility. So what can internal communication do, I suppose, to meet demands for civic responsibility while also helping an organization to continue to grow and meet its objectives? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, it's, it's, it's the one that matters most. I, I, I hesitate to tell people how to do their jobs, especially when I've never done that job myself. But I would suggest that I think one of the first steps is is actually to find out what your people are passionate about. What 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 are the things that they really care about, and ensure that when you're looking at your own social purpose. And as I say, more more and more organisations are become coming highly active not not just purposeful um when you look at that it seems to me it needs to reflect what what what, what what's coming up from from the things that are driving your 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 workforce now sometimes they're not always um uh the kind of things that you want to hear 
but but you're you're only going to be able to move forward if you start to have a kind of respectful discussion around some of that. You know, one of the the things about Brexit is that it it really kind of was highly divisive in in the workforce in in the organisations, and uh, you know we're seeing now that with COVID, it's becoming you know the vaccination is becoming a political issue. All of these things can really affect people's ability to do their work. And I think that rather than it, it being put in the box, which is nice to investigate when we have the time and the opportunity. And I, I, I totally get it. You know, as Kat said, I work with educators right now. They're testing students and that feels like all they're doing, not, not academic tests. They're sticking swabs up their nose, you know, so you get me coming in and talking about their internal culture and, and I get short shrift and I don't blame them. But I do think, you know, these these things haven't stopped. The, the Me Too movement hasn't stopped. So we, we can't, as much as we might like to, we can't just say, let's just park that till we get through the pandemic. We've we've got to be able to cope with what what is in people's hearts and minds. And, and and that that leads you into some some areas that frankly I think some leaders feel uncomfortable getting into. What was what was fascinating, I think, about um lockdown, and I had a few CEOs tell me this, is that they actually saw into people's lives. They literally saw into their their living rooms and their kitchens, and they saw the kids running around and they saw the kind of stresses that those people were under. And for many of them, it was the first time they'd, they'd, they'd been made aware of that. It, they weren't having those kinds of, you know, you can often have the superficial, how's it that going at home, where are you going for your holidays, all those kinds of discussions. But but this was different. And they saw people who had, you know, just buried their relatives or couldn't bury their relatives. And, and that was a really um, salutary moment, it seems to me, that we... The, the moment when we can get back and, and who knows if, you know, the hybrid workplace is, is, is going to be a permanent feature. But the moment when we when we can bring people together, it seems to me we have to start having those kinds of conversations on a regular basis and we have to build them in. Because if we don't, then you do get those kind of shocks to the system that James Watt got had brewed up when he suddenly realised that people were saying it's a misogynist organisation. I'm sure he had no idea that that, that was going on. Um, so having having those kinds of conversations now is is critical, and, and it's always been that great paradox to me that the moment when we were most physically disconnected was the moment, ironically, where, where we felt most connected. And, and a lot of that was through the technology, but it was also through people thinking we have to look out for one another. And and when you create that, um, when you create that culture, then I think your job as a leader becomes much easier. David, thank you very much. I think numerous things were taken from this, a lot of notes. I think one of the key things is the power of conversation and how conversation helps you understand what people are passionate about. It also helps you understand their issues, and it helps you connect with them much more much more effectively as well. So that's a really strong thing we'll take from it. But thank you very much indeed. Yes, thank, thank you, you, David. That was brilliant. 
Thanks so much for listening today. This episode has been brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself, Jen Sproul, Kat Barnard, and Dominic Walters. This episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabi Tulu-Ogonpalu. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review, and subscribe on the channel you choose to tune in. It really helps others to know that we're here. We'll tune in and hopefully see you next time.